Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is the 4th of November 2021. So come to find out it wasn't just Virginia where on Tuesday voters elected the Republican candidate to serve as governor. A former Marine who is also a black woman uh, was elected the position of lieutenant governor in that state and Virginians elected a Republican majority to the state legislature. Um, It it also happened uh, in Texas. And it happened in the state of Washington, and it looks to be happening in New Jersey. So something is going on across the country, um, and it has commentators chatting it up on the topic uh, in terms of why. And I will I will argue that, um, you know, people are out there voting their conscience. They understand what is, uh, you know, what is happening in the culture and in the country, and they are. Um, doing their part, they're going forward and they're voting their conscience. So let's see. In Texas, I'm reading here from the Western Journal, quote, a Republican managed to flip a Democratic-held Texas state House seat on Tuesday in a district that Joe Biden won in November by 14 points. Uh, And so that is Texas House District 118. It also happened in the city of Seattle, where Republican Ann Davison is set to unseat the incumbent um, in the uh, in the position of city attorney. So the Seattle Times is is describing their um, the person who has been unseated, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, as a quote police abolitionist. Uh, the paper reports that the person who lost this election, uh, the former public defender. Um, who wants to ultimately abolish all misdemeanor prosecutions and who, during the unrest that swept through the city of Seattle in the summer of 2020, tweeted about her, quote, rabid hatred of the police. She is the person who pronounced property destruction during the times of protest a, quote, moral imperative. Well, that person, um, the citizens of Seattle have have said uh, she's not going to be our city attorney. So, um Ann Davison is the Republican who's been elected to that position in the city of Seattle. It's also appears to be happening in New Jersey, where the longest running state Senate president, uh, Democrat Steve Sweeney, I'm sure is surprised uh, at his upset loss to a commercial truck driver named Edward Durr, who spent $153 on donuts and printing paper flyers over the course of his campaign. So it would seem that people are awake and they are voting their conscience. Maybe the tide is turning. Maybe people are reclaiming the particular spaces and places where they have influence. Um, I would describe this maybe as one square inch at a time. So again, I'm not making a red or a blue argument here. I am uh, talking about principles and priorities that I perceive to be derived from Christ-centered redemptive worldview, where every individual is regarded as precious 
and is acknowledged uh, as capable of making a contribution. Uh, and I, I see every person as able and gifted and capable and part of the full functioning of the body politic. So it all works best if everyone who is able works and does their best uh, and joyfully then contributes to the welfare of those who uh, who cannot care for themselves. But that is a different conversation than a welfare state. All right, Ben Johnson is up next. He's a media reporter from The Daily Wire. We're going to talk across a range of headlines this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mornings with Carmen. He put that All righty. Well, uh, good morning again. Joining me now is Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter from The Daily Wire. He tweets at The Rights Writer. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Carmen. So um, I'm having a little tiny bit of technical difficulty on my end. And so um, you're just going to assume that I can hear you and we're going to roll forward. Um, So, Ben, I I understand that there are some churches out there that have – received PPP, you're going to remind us what PPP is, um, and they are actually paying back those PPP loans, even though those loans are technically forgiven. Talk with us about what's happening here. Yeah, that's right. And uh, of course, PPP loans, uh, that's one of those things that came out of this COVID era that we're still living through. Paycheck Protection Program from the federal government which uh, during the time that the federal government had a lockdown where they were afraid that COVID would spread and they told people not to go to work, they extended a loan to businesses and they said that if you use it to keep people uh, on your payroll, then uh, we, you will, we will give you this loan and it will uh, continue to have uh, uh, forgiveness if you use at least 60% of it to pay people who work for you. And if you pay less than that, then they forgive part of the loan. So that's that's what's happened. But uh, even though uh, you have this massive loan forgiveness, there are some churches that have decided to pay it back. Now, it's not very many. It's uh, actually I, I ran the math according to the numbers that uh, were published by the Religion News Service. There were thirteen thousand four hundred eight religious groups uh, that were approved for loans of one hundred fifty thousand dollars or more. About a hundred repaid the loans and fewer than 50 never took the money out in the first place. So that's one point one percent. So it's it's a small percentage. You know, Jesus had one of the 10 lepers come back and say, thank you. This is 10% of that 10%. But nonetheless, you could argue that the, the churches would use better, they would make better use of the money. But they are, in some cases, giving that back. That includes Joel Osteen's church, among others. But uh, yeah, this this uh, one of the things that uh, they pointed out is that in a vast percentage of uh, congregations, they were worried, of course, since they weren't holding in-person services that uh, giving would go down. About one in every eight churches had to lay somebody off. They had a certain percentage, phenomenal percentage, that saw their rising, uh, their, their giving rise during the lockdown. So they were actually bringing in more money. It says a lot about the, the nature of Christianity. Christians go above and beyond what is expected for them, especially when times get hard. They support their church. They support one another. Uh, they support the community. And that's what churches are supposed to do. My, my takeaway from all this is imagine if our first instinct was to turn to our neighbor and to the church instead of the government. We might get even farther along the line. Yeah, absolutely. And if 
um, if we didn't penalize people for um, forgiving to one another in that way and we somehow incentivize that, um, you know, we might, yeah, as you described, be better off. All right, let's talk about the powers of uh, of rationalization uh, and the dangers that, I, I mean, I, when we seek to apply the mind of Christ in the matters of the day, I, I know that there's this this challenge um, for those of us who then see others rationalizing behavior that we would regard as contemptible. Can you just talk a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, and rationalization is one of the key components of the human psyche. Whenever we're dealing with something that we know uh, we've been convicted that we are sinning in, we have two choices either repent and sin no more. Of course, the Greek word for repentance, metanieta, literally means change your mind and change your actions. So we can either repent and sin no more, or we can rationalize and say that we had a good reason for doing what we were doing, that uh, you know we're not really sorry for what we did, maybe we can even persist in it. Uh, the, the article in, in question was written by Philip Bump in the uh, Washington Post. Uh, I have somewhat little regard for him, frankly, as a, as a journalist, but he, he puts together numbers released by the Capitol Police that the number of threats of violence against elected officials in uh, the first two and a half months of this year are more than the entire year 2017, 4,100. Uh, so we're well on our way to setting a record here. And he, he ties together certain rationalizations for for striking out or lashing out against public officials. Uh, but I think he's ignoring also, uh, it's a much broader discussion than just federal officials, as, as deep as that is. Uh, we see a massive widespread increase in violence, in criminality, socially and cultural uh, across the entire culture. Uh, we see this massive uptick in neighborhoods, in, in elected uh, offices, in political space, but, but also just in our everyday life. We've seen the number of murders skyrocket over the last year, year and a half. And Romans 13 says a ruler is supposed to be a terror unto bad works to execute wrath upon him who doeth evil. And in, in many cases, people who are standing at home are seeing politicians uh, stand by as shoplifters walk out of stores with bags full of things they know they'll never be prosecuted for stealing. They see criminals released multiple times without any bail. And they are, they are, I think, lashing out, trying to rationalize what's happening. And, and they see politicians blame the victims somehow uh, for the root causes of this criminality. And so people are lashing out at the politicians saying, if you won't protect my neighborhood, I'll bring violence to yours. And all of it is wrong. All of it is completely anti-Christian. Uh, it points out to me the irony that uh, politicians have tried for years to drive the Christian influence out of the culture. And they should be very careful what they ask for, because what replaces it will be a lot less forgiving and have a lot fewer qualms about violence. If they knew what they were doing, they would encourage the spread of Christianity through the entire culture, because it brings with it that attendant belief in deference to government, in long-suffering, in forgiveness, and doing as much as is, lies within you to live in peace with all those around you. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right. We're talking with Ben Johnson. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find him at dailywire.com. When we come back, we're going to talk about the American work ethic. How how uh, how are we doing on that? Um, I've been reading something that Mike Rowe uh, has been uh, has been posting about uh, the potential death of the American work ethic, and I thought, well, that's a good subject matter to talk with, uh, to talk over with Ben Johnson. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. 
right, we're continuing our conversation with Ben Johnson. You can find him at dailywire.com. Um, ben, first, let me ask this. What are you, um, what has your attention and what are you working on? Well, right now, I just uh, completed a, a piece on uh, the use of marijuana and the harms that it causes to people, both physically and mentally, uh, emotionally, uh, the, the effects that it has, for example, on instilling and uh, pulling forward psychosis in people who are predisposed toward it. Uh, that has gotten a tremendous amount of traction at Daily Wire. And uh, as you can imagine, a lot of the public comments are from people who indulge in, and have been somewhat hostile. But privately, I'm getting a lot of uh, very good messages. So uh, if anyone uh, has has anything to uh, to say about that, I think this will give you a lot of uh, ammunition when people say marijuana is harmless. Uh, it's it's uh, personal choice and it doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, in fact, it, it causes a lot of damages that uh, the media no longer talk about. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking we, we had a couple of conversations with the uh, Christ and Cannabis. I'm not actually sure that that's the name of the book as I say it out loud. Um, but uh, we, we were talking um, uh, on that subject matter and trying to equip Christians for that conversation. So, yeah, I really uh, appreciate your coverage on that. Um, I don't know if you uh, see have seen or follow at all um, Mark or Mike, uh, Mike Rowe. Um, and I don't even know, you know, frankly, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's the dirty jobs guy. Um, and he had this great Facebook post um, in answer to the question about his view of the labor shortage. And did you see that by any chance, Ben? I did. And it was amazing. You know, Mike, uh, Mike is an amazing individual. Uh, he's highlighted dignity of work and, and the kinds of jobs that you usually wouldn't see and, and you wouldn't think pay very well, but in fact, uh, sustain a lot of people and do a lot of important functions in society. And you know what he's talking about is the fact that when he started Dirty Jobs, there were uh, something like two and a half, uh, almost three million unfulfilled jobs, uh, as opposed to the number of workers. They didn't have enough workers to fill those jobs. Now it's 11. And he says that that's due in large part to the work ethic that you were just talking about. All right. So the, when we talk about the American work ethic, um, you know, I, I'll just grant to you, like, I grew up with parents who got up every morning and went to work. And so I have this expectation that you get up every morning and you go to work. And, you know, some mornings you might be a little tired when the alarm goes off, but you still get up and you go to work. And some days, you know, you're... Um, the, the issues in your life might be myriad, but you still get up and you go to work um, because going to work is not just about ensuring that there's a paycheck out of which you can then do the things in your life, take responsibility for the things in your life for which um, you, know, you recognize that you are responsible, um, but also because your work matters and people are depending on you. Um, what is, when, when Mike says the American work ethic and then he talks about, you know, the the challenges that we face on that front. Is that what he's talking about? He really is, you know, and, and uh, for the longest time, we called it the Protestant work ethic. Uh, Max Weber, of course, came up with that term that it's uniquely rooted in our faith heritage uh, and, and, and in large part is rooted in our makeup. According to the, uh, the very first chapter of the Bible, God created male and female, set them in a garden and told them to work. And so work is part of the kingdom plan. It's not something that was added later because of transgressions. The sweat of the brow was added later in, in Genesis 3 because of, uh, because of our sin. But the original plan was for us to work and be productive. And so that's, that's deeply ingrained in our nature to have a, a need, a desire, uh, in fact, a burning, uh, almost unquenchable thirst to be of service to other people and to make life better. 
and yet uh, you know, that's that's largely been anesthetized. It's been uh, minimized. It's been subsidized out of out of uh, the culture right now, because we we've come up with all kinds of incentives for people not to fulfill the function that their creator has has uh, given them. And in many cases, the churches aren't telling people it is your job. It is something that has been instilled in you. Uh, you know, to go forward and do honest work so that uh, you may have something to share with anyone in need, according to Ephesians chapter 4. So uh, right now, not only do we have millions of unfulfilled jobs and people not searching for work, in part because it, it, for a long period of time they could make as much money or more just by staying at home, and it didn't, it was not in their economic interest to do so. In some cases, it's people who have children who are would be in school, except that the school is closed, and so they have to be at home. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of societal reasons why this is happening, but it's a trend that way predates the COVID thing. And I want to make that very clear. Uh, it, we've had a continually falling labor participation rate, among, particularly among young men, uh, in the prime of their life. Right now, there, there's an acronym that everybody should know. It's called NEET. And it's not uh, like keen or, or far out. It's N-E-E-T, meaning someone who is neither in employment nor education or training. So it's someone in the prime of their life, not hospitalized, able-bodied, we, we, we call an able-bodied worker, and about one in every eight able-bodied uh, would-be workers is not working. They're not in education. They're not doing anything. Uh, for the most part, they're in front of a screen most of their day, and it's one of the highest rates in the developed world. There are fewer people in Greece in that category than there are in the United States, which is quite a, a cultural rebuke. So this is this is part of what we are spiritually. It's part of our, our very design from the very beginning for us to go forward and serve others and to remember, in, in the words of Colossians, whatever we do, work heartily as unto the Lord, and out from the Lord we will receive the inheritance as our reward. Our work is part of our spiritual service to others. It's not separate from our Christian life. It's part of our Christian life. Okay, so I have learned a new acronym today. The acronym is NEET, N-E-E-T, not engaged in education, employment, or training. I feel like maybe there should be a, a third E in there. Because if I do not engage, then that's N-E. And then I do education, employment, training, that would be three E's. But then it's just hard to tell what it is. So there you go. Neat. N-E-E-T. What does it mean? Uh, it means a person who is not engaged in education, employment, or training. Um, and wow, that does not for a, um, a good, uh, neat life make. Like, right? I, that's, that's a interesting um, reality and concept that you have uh, brought to my attention and awareness today. Ben Johnson, as it, always, that is awesome. Thank you so much. And it's not nearly as difficult a word to pronounce or say as some of the others that you've taught us. <laughs> I have to say, I was, I was a little bit intimidated being on today because I read an excellent uh, article written by uh, someone named Carmen LeBurge. Uh, about all of the attributes that work brings into our life, and I thought I should just sit back and let you read that because it was amazing. So if uh, if you have the ability to share that with with people, because the attributes that work brings uh, uh, really helps entice people into realizing that yes, it's hard and yes, it's difficult, but it brings not only a better world for those around us, but it makes us better people. Yeah, I think that our ethics grow out of something, right? I mean, they. They grow out of what we regard as virtuous, which I think our virtues grow out of what we value. Um, and so getting to the place where we can have a values conversation and then a virtues conversation leads us into an ethics conversation. But I think a lot of people 
just go along with whatever the culture is doing. And so if, you know, people in your in your age group and in your neighborhood aren't pursuing education and they aren't pursuing employment and they aren't pursuing training, um, you know, that's there's sort of a contagion that happens in a culture as well. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in, in having people think more deeply about what we're doing and why we're doing it and what motivates that. And then obviously for the Christian to have those motivations be uh, be drawn out of the deep well of um, of the of the mind of Christ and the calling of Christ uh, in our lives today. Well, I thought one of the best points you made was about uh, social equality, which is that uh, in, in this kind of a society, what you really value is someone's productivity, about how good they are at what they do. It doesn't matter what family they come from, uh, what color they are, what background they are. Uh, it's, it's about how good they are at what they do and their excellence. And everyone's striving for excellence, which increases productivity. And then the idea of serving other people. I thought that that was so good. Uh, you know, if, if you truly value people and what they produce, then that creates a society that's more inherently equal and more reflective of the way that God judges us according to the parable of the talents. Hmm. Hey, Ben, um, thanks so much. As always, I appreciate you, my brother and my friend. You guys can find Ben Johnson at dailywire.com. Uh, look for his piece um, on the topic of marijuana, uh, going green, physical and mental emotional problems associated with marijuana. You can find that at dailywire.com. Ben, thanks, brother. Thank you so much. God bless. We'll be right back. All right. Sometimes you um, you just run into somebody at church and you say to yourself, I think I want to talk with them on the air. Uh, and I want everybody to know who they are and what they're doing and how God's working in their life. So his name is Taylor Combs, and he's going to join us next. He's a friend of mine from church. He also works for Lifeway. Um, and he and his wife are uh, a part of a church planting team that's going to go plant a church in the city where we live. Um, and I thought that it would be great to talk with Taylor about what's going on with young adults. Uh, he has a piece posted at ERLC.com on why young adults are losing their faith and therefore leaving the church. And I thought just helping us understand what's going on um, with people in their, particularly in their early 20s, but um, but in their mid and late 20s as well, like this is a this is a generation that we don't want to lose. And so how can we encourage them? How can we embrace them? How can we help them take positive steps of faith forward? And part of that is going to mean um, providing the resources for the planting of more churches across America. So up next, my friend Taylor Combs. We'll be right back. If there's tension at home, You know what it's like to carry that stress with you throughout the day. A strained relationship with your teen affects all areas of your life. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you're carrying a heavy burden for your family right now, plan some time to focus on your own health. Battle-worn moms may think, I can't focus on myself when a kid needs so much help. It seems selfish. That's bogus. 
We need to change our mindset if we want to grow strong families. Strong, mature teens come from healthy homes. Take care of yourself by focusing on your marriage, finding a support group of like-minded people, and getting plenty of rest. By taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your teen. Want to bring Mark to your church or community? Find out how to request an event in your area when you visit parentingtodaysteens.org. Christ and my co-laborer in the kingdom, Taylor Combs. He, he works for Lifeway, but we're really going to talk uh, today about um, his understanding of students and student ministry and young adults and why they are losing their faith and why he and his wife are part of a church planting team. Taylor, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks, Carmen. How are you this morning? I, I am well. How are you this morning? And what's happening at your house with that little tiny little person who's just so full of energy? Well, she is full of energy, which is why I snuck out of my house this morning. I <laughs> meet a couple guys for Bible study on Thursday mornings over at Lipscomb University where I graduated. So I'm sitting in, in one of my old classrooms right now where there is no chance of a baby waking up in the background. <laughs> okay, so um, I actually think that everything that you just described is um, good fodder for our conversation. <laughs> yes, it um, is. Y- you were well prepared as a student, so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about um, how we sort of learn the rhythms of discipleship. And then you're obviously actively discipling other young men. You're meeting with them. You got up early. They got up early. You're um, you're studying the Bible together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are recognizing that there are some sacrifices that have to be made, um, you know, by you and your family in order for you to do that. Like all of that, I think, is a part of this larger conversation yeah. about the church today and discipleship today. So um, I'm looking at a piece that's posted at ERLC.com which listeners are familiar with that. It's the Ethics and Mm -hmm. Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. So ERLC.com, the piece is, why are so many young adults losing their faith? Taylor, talk with us about preparing students for a faith that that is resilient. Yeah, so I I wrote that article um, in the wake of learning that a good friend from high school, now in her late 20s, was to use her own phrase, and it's one that we've become familiar with, is deconstructing her faith. And she's somebody who even in in high school, I just admired for the integrity and the maturity of her faith. And I was really shocked when I heard that. And I just couldn't kind of escape it mentally for a few days. And as I thought about it, I realized how many more friends I've seen walk away from kind of a historic Orthodox faith or even Christianity altogether in their mid to late 20s than in college. And I thought it's interesting because we spend so much time and emphasis on helping young people, high schoolers in particular, be prepared to not lose their faith when they go to college that, you know, that I've not really seen that as much as in their twenties. And of course that's anecdotal, but um, I think the reality is Carmen, what happens freshman year on campus is a sorting of people who have genuine faith and people who don't for the most part. There are, I think, very few people who really truly have genuine conviction and faith who walk away from faith freshman year. Really, it's the people who who already never really had a genuine faith that do that. And the people who go to college, you know, committed to the Lord are finding Bible studies, they're finding campus ministries, they're finding 
churches with great college ministries and they're really plugging in. And what they end up in is this, you know, three, four, five year, sort of what I, what I call in the article, a discipleship pressure cooker, where there's, there's all these conditions that help them grow deeper in their faith. And that's a, a great and, and beautiful thing. But what often happens then when they get out of college is, is they lose that. Uh, they lose a few particular things. They lose the sort of intense and regular corporate or communal discipleship that they have in college. They lose access to, to leaders who are more advanced and knowledgeable in the faith. And they lose time for extended devotion, prayer, Bible reading with the Lord. And faith gets much more challenging in, in the loss of those three things. So um, I was reflecting, I've been on a college campus the last couple of days in Northwest Iowa, um, and mm. I met a young man who is a freshman, who I think is absolutely experiencing precisely what you just described. Um, and it's a, it's a, cha- it's a first time, right, that he is facing um, questions and, and yeah. being invited into conversations that, you know, frankly, he was insulated and isolated from mm-hmm. uh, in the community and town and, and church that he grew up in. And so that's part of it as well, right? We're exposed to more people and more ideas. And if we imagine that the, that Christ isn't reliable, that the truth mm-hmm. that, that we have embraced um, in our, you know, in our church and in our home communities, if that truth isn't like, if we fear it won't hold, like it won't stand up yeah. to the scrutiny, right? I, isn't that part of what's going on? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there, there is a sense that, you know, Charles Taylor has cited a lot for noting in, in his huge book, All right. So, um, all right. We, Taylor, uh, we missed that part. You started uh, re- referring to Charles Taylor and then the audio dropped out there for a minute. So oh, can no. you just re- remake that point? Yes, I can. I, I was just saying that, um, that Taylor, you know, is noted for um, pointing out that in, in late modern or postmodern society, there is, um, there's the reality that all faith is to some extent challenged by doubt right? There, there's no faith that's, that's doubt-free. And so there is a question of how much confidence do we have in, in what we've been taught? How much confidence do we have in Christ? How much confidence do we have in the Word? Um, and, and it's the sort of thing that, that a, a diet of sort of mountaintop experiences cannot sustain, right? When, when that doubt comes, as it inevitably will, if your faith has been built on a diet of, of retreats and camps where you get to these mountaintop experiences and then you come back and and you're in the valley. It's hard to withstand those doubts when they come. Hmm. That's so good. All right, we're going to continue this conversation with Taylor Combs in just a moment. He is an associate publisher uh, at B&H Publishing Group, but, you know, maybe most importantly for people listening this morning, he's a former barista at both Starbucks (laughs) and the Well Coffee House. So there you go. He's a dear friend. He's a brother in Christ. He and his precious wife, uh, Lindsay, have been called to be a part of a church planting team. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Taylor about that. I'm going to ask why we, you know, in a in a city where there's lots of churches, like why do we need another church? In fact, why do we need lots of new churches in America? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
I'm talking with Taylor Combs. Uh, he's a brother in Christ, and God has set upon his heart uh, that he and a group of people who God has called and knit together should plant a church in a city where, you know, frankly, there's already a lot of churches. So, Taylor, I'm going to invite you to make the case. And I think this is connected <laughs> to our earlier conversation um, about emerging generations and the questions they're asking, the conversations that they're having in the community that they're desiring. Yeah, you want me to make the case for church planting. How long do I have? <laughs> just go. <laughs> just, I'll just the, put, a di- the, I'll put the dime in and you just go. That's great. So here, here's the case that I made to our, our current congregation. Um, there's, there's really two main reasons that I think there's a mandate for church planting. One, it's the biblical plan for making disciples of all nations. It's, it's both the model that we see, for example, in the book of Acts, and I, I think it's actually baked into the Great Commission. We don't always think about this this way, but Jesus says, what, go and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptizing is something that churches do. It's, it's not just something in, in normal cases that individual Christians go and do. So baked into the Great Commission is this idea that there are going to be churches among all nations. So it's, there's a, a biblical plan for making disciples and its church planting. But then we also see from, you know, a, a, almost a pragmatic level that it's the most effect, effective plan, practically speaking, for making disciples. So there's, there's several resources and, and different kinds of research you can look to to make this case. Uh, some of it is cited in Tim Keller's book, Center Church, which is, has been really helpful to me. There's Lifeway research that confirms this. But somewhere between 40 and 50 percent on average of attendees at new churches that's defined as seven years or younger by Lifeway Research were previously unchurched. So think of that between 40 and 50 percent of people attending church plants are people who have either not gone to church before this plant or they were were disconnected. So they were unbelievers. They're, they're coming to faith in Christ or they were maybe disconnected from a church, disillusioned believers who haven't been attending and then in addition to that, this is this uh, data cited in Keller's book, when a city has one church per 10,000 residents, about 1% of that population will attend church. When a city has one church per 1,000 residents, that number increases to 15 to 20%. And when it has one church per 500 residents, the number increases to about 40%. So those numbers may be a little hard to track with early in the morning, but the point is the rate of church attendance growth in a city is not linear in relation to church planting, but exponential. So church growth by multiplication is always going to be a better strategy for reaching a city or a community than just church growth by attendance. So I would make the case, Carmen, that even if there's literally a church on every corner in a city, we still need to be planting new churches because new churches in God's providence are a way that that people who were previously disconnected or unconnected from church are hearing the gospel and and coming to faith in Christ. So I 100% agree with um, with all of that. I think that there is also um, this proximity argument to be made. Um, mm-hmm. You you are proximate because of your age and because mm-hmm. you know you wear cool shoes, um, <laughs> and you're married to Lindsay, and you're at the age and stage where you're having babies. Like you are proximate to people yeah. um, that. I, you know, to whom I am not currently proximate. 
Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a grandma, right? And that has its value and, um, and I can be helpful. And people, some people like to talk to me, but there's a lot of eye rolling, you know, from the, <laughs> the crowd that, um, that would be, that would absolutely be interested in sitting down with you. Um, and so I think that there's, um, there's this proximate both in like geography, like, right. Mm-hmm. It's literally about going to a place, Right. where there are people who are disconnected from the body of Christ. So there's a um, there's a proximity in terms of that, but there's also just sort of this social location proximity that I think really, yes. really matters. And um, I mean, I've even said, I mean, I love, I love the local congregation of which I am a part. Mm-hmm. But there are people who I meet who would be very uncomfortable in the congregation where I worship. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not what I describe necessarily for a lot of folks as like an entry level church. And um, I've been to, you know, I've been to churches that I feel like are, would be an easier point of entry for folks um, at different ages and stages um, and realities of life circumstance. And that's not in any way saying my church, the church that I attend, isn't great. It's right. saying that the church is bigger than any one expression of it. Yeah, there's almost a metaphor we could use, right? Paul Paul talks about the local church, a single local church as, as a body with different mm-hmm. members, different body parts contributing to it. And we could, I think, extend that metaphor to, say, all the churches in a city, um, that, that there are different churches that are going to meet different needs. They, of course, have the same mission. They have the same gospel. Um, but I, I was talking to a pastor in our community where we're planting just a couple of days ago. He's in his late 50s. He's at a church that's been there for probably 100 years. He's been there for 27 years, and I, what I love about where we're planting in, in East Nashville is that there is no sense of competition among pastors there. They know we've got plenty of work on our hands, and he said, man, you guys are going to reach people we aren't going to reach, and we're going to reach people you aren't going to reach, and we're just going to encourage one another and pull for one another and pray for one another and help one another, and I love that. So you're right. It, of course, we want to be a, the kind of church where all people feel welcome. We want to be a diverse church in in multiple different categories, but we also know that in God's sovereignty, you're right. What, younger people are going to be more attracted to a church with a young pastor um, than than older generations, and vice versa. And again, Lord willing, we will have multiple generations at our church. But but you know, I think of of Eugene Peterson's book, The Pastor. He writes about his calling to be a pastor and when they planted a church and what that church ended up looking like. And he said. After a couple of years, I realized this was not the church that I had intended to set out to plant, but it was the church that God gave me, and I I was called to be faithful to that that congregation. So we don't get to determine the makeup of our churches; we get to be faithful with the people God brings us. And and as you said, different churches are are gonna are gonna bring different people. Yeah, I'm. You just brought to mind um, a situation that uh, that took place um, in a rural community where uh, it was a, it was an Episcopal congregation. I'm not going to remember all the details of this, but literally a person came knocking at the door, um, and he was a refugee who had moved here mm-hmm. from um, another part of the world, and he wanted a place to plant a garden, and he saw all this green space around this church, and there mm-hmm. was never anybody there. Um, and the church had a red door, which he had recognized from his own country mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, as a church, because it, the Episcopals apparently, Episcopalians paint their doors red. Anyway, so he went and he knocked 
on the door of the church and the pastor opened the door. They didn't speak the same language. The man asked if he could plant a garden. The pastor had never been asked such a question and couldn't figure out how to say no. Um, And now that church is pretty much, I mean, it is completely revitalized, but it is now Mm. led by a member of that ethnic community. And it is a congregation that is no longer um, constituted by, you know, the people who a hundred years ago planted that church for the farmers, um, you know, who moved to Middle Tennessee. And so I just think that right there is, there's this opportunity for the church to be the church in a local community. Sometimes that means planting a brand new church. Sometimes that means Mm -hmm. what I have friends uh, that, you know, they call it overseed, where there is a congregation where you know it was once a flourishing place and mm-hmm. now it has gone fallow and it needs to be replanted and that's um, yeah. that's happening across the country as well so I wanted the opportunity to celebrate with you um, this calling on your life and what God is doing mm-hmm. and I also just wanted everybody to embrace where we are um, in the life of of our country right. and the opportunities that we have as Christians to just expand the reach of the gospel to more and more people like let's mm-hmm. let's go find some uh and <laughs> you know and share and share the gospel uh that more and more people might populate uh the kingdom of heaven That's right. not only forever but you know make it manifest and demonstrate the principles of it here and now That's right and and there is a need as you mentioned for for so many different kinds of work church planting church revitalization and thank god for churches who have who have been healthy for years and years and years, and now in are, are in a position to help uh, to help serve those those new works, church plants and revitalizations, to help send people and send money and send resources. Um, there there is a, a place in the sort of renewal work for every kind of church, and and we're grateful and, and trusting that that God and His Spirit is is leading and, and moving churches to partake in that mission. Amen. Taylor, blessings on you. Give our blessings, extend our blessings uh, to Lindsay as well, to the rest of your team. Um, And, you know, we're going to pray for you and over you, and we're going to continue to support you in this labor. We thank you for being here. Thank you, Carmen. Appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. That's Taylor Combs. You can read what he's writing at ERLC.com, and you can pray for him as he and his wife, Lindsay, uh, work on a church planting team in East Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be right back. All right. uh, Where in the Word are you today? If you haven't been in the Word of God yet this morning, please get into the Word before you get out there into the world. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. One of your favorites, Peter Kapsner, joins me at the top of the next hour. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.